The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, uh, we're going to look at verse 1, and then we're going to look at verse 17 through 21. So we're going to kind of jump around, it'll be on the screen for you too. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's chapter 1, verse 1. Now I want you to look at verses 17 through 21 with me. It says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this season, the Christmas season that we celebrate every year. And Father, I pray that you would come this morning, that you would reveal to us who Jesus is. I pray, Father, that you would help us to encounter Jesus as our Savior, as our Emmanuel, God with us, as our King of kings and Lord of lords, as our teacher, our instructor, our preacher, our healer. Finally, Father, help us to encounter Jesus as the rock of ages upon whom your church, your bride, has been founded. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us more and more of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. Help us to come to faith in him, renew our faith in him, and find hope and fulfillment in him and him alone. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Hey, question, what do you love about the Christmas season? Just think about it for a minute. You can even holler a couple things out if you want. What do you love about the Christmas season? Anybody? Food, Christmas trees. What else did I hear? I heard lights. Giving to others. Oh, somebody just put the rest of y'all to shame, okay? Just saying. I love the Christmas season, okay? It's one of my favorite seasons of the year. I love the beauty of the season. All the lights, all the music, all the festivities, all the food, all the time that we spend with uh, family and friends. I love the Christmas season. But above all those things that I love about the Christmas season, I especially love this intense focus that we have on the coming of Jesus to this earth. He came to this earth. Why? To live the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He came to exhibit his authority over Satan, sin, and death. That's what he did in the cross and the empty tomb. 
Ultimately, he gave his life as a ransom to save sinners, to redeem us from the presence and the penalty and the, and the power of our sin. He came to leave the grave empty, right, on the third day. That's huge. Left the grave empty on the third day. Left us with a commission. The commission to reach the lost, to make disciples, all of that in, this, in the light of the hope of heaven that we have, knowing that this earth is not our home. We're merely passing through. We were not meant to make this our home. Heaven is our ultimate destination. It is our promised land. I love that focus of Christmas. And so over the course of the next four Sundays, what we're going to do is we're going to study through four books of the Bible. Is everybody shocked? We're going to study through four books of the Bible. Today we're going to study through the entire Gospel of Matthew. So put your seatbelts on, drink more coffee, energy drinks. We'll be here a couple hours. And I'm kidding. <laughs> All y'all know I'm probably not kidding. Today we're going to do the Gospel of Matthew, okay? Next week we're going to do the Gospel of Mark. The week after that we're going to do the Gospel of Luke. And then we're going to do the Gospel of John. We're going to do this so that we can kind of gain a treetop view of how each biblical author actually describes Jesus. We're also going to look at it in terms of asking this question. How should we respond? How should we act? How should we live in light of that biblical description of who Jesus is? Because here's the reality. In our Western culture, our version of Jesus oftentimes gets relegated down. We relegate Jesus down to just being a man, right, who doesn't mind our sin. We're really getting him down to just being a man. He, he's okay with us just kind of leaving him on a shelf in the back of the room until we hit some kind of roadblock in our lives. We relegate him down to just being a man who kind of wears the clothing of one political party versus the other. I mean, the list just goes on and on on how we try to recreate Jesus in our own image in the way that we like him. Now, one of the things that I am super passionate about is helping people, not just helping people, but even just learning myself, um, to come to know the real uh, biblical Jesus, to, to hear from him for ourselves, like um, what happened in John chapter 4 after the woman at the well goes back and tells the city, and they come out and they hang out with Jesus for a couple days, and after that they go, yo, we believe in you because we heard from the woman about you, but now we believe in you because we heard from you for ourselves. I'm passionate about wanting to help people hear from Jesus for themselves and also to make that Jesus known among the lost. It's those two things that I'm super passionate about. And I think that one of the really important pieces to understanding who the biblical Jesus is according to our gospel accounts here, is to actually come to understand a little bit of the massive differences as well as some of the peculiar similarities between what we celebrate about in, in Christmas here in the West versus what was actually happening a couple thousand years ago in the culture of the East when Jesus was born. And so I want to get us started this morning with a bit of a, what I would call a cultural analysis of what was going on at the time of Jesus' birth, right? I want us to come to kind of understand a little bit of what was happening in Israel at that time. I want us to uh, think about what Israel's uh, general worldview was. I want us to think about what the Jews were actually expecting when Jesus was born into that manger on that cold Christmas morning. Because I think what it'll do is it'll help to set the tone, it'll help to set the table, so to speak, for us to actually think about how Matthew describes Jesus. 
So at the time of Jesus' birth, Israel's religion had become known as something called Judaism. Everybody say Judaism. It become known as Judaism. Judaism in the first century was basically born out of a period of time that was known as the intertestamental period. That's a big mouthful. It was the intertestamental period. Basically what that is, is it's the period of time between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, right? The Old Testament, I believe, ends with the book of Malachi. Somebody tell me I'm right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, I've got that because it's not in my notes, so I'm doing this from memory. And the beginning of the New Testament, I'm pretty sure, begins with the book of Matthew. Does that sound about right? Okay, whew, thank Jesus, I got that straight. I'm not a heretic, usually. So in between the ending of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament, you have about 400 years. That's the intertestamental period. Some would call it the Dark Ages. Um, this is a period of time that lasted from roughly the last quarter of the 5th century B.C. to the 1st century A.D., and during this period of time, that 400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, Israel basically experienced four major historical events that helped to shape the political and the religious landscape of the nation of Israel. So I want you to just kind of think through these four major things that happened. First of all, you had the return of the Jews to their homeland under Persian rule. Okay, that's one of the first events that happened that shaped what's going to take place when Jesus is born. The second thing that you had happen is the Hellenization, or you could say the, uh, the Greek formation uh, of the Middle Eastern world <coughs> under Greek rule. So what, what happened is that the Jews return, and then the entire world starts to le really lean towards a Greek-slash-pagan religious and philosophical mindset okay so you have those two things taking place the third historical event that took place in the years leading up to jesus birth is something called the maccabean revolt and the establishment of what is called the hasmonean dynasty we're gonna we're gonna really hone in on the maccabean revolt here just for a moment in a, in a few minutes the fourth thing that took place that really shaped the nation of israel this religion called judaism is the what we would call the institution of roman rule Okay. Once the Romans began to rule uh, the world, um, things changed dramatically. So I want to press pause. I want to explain the Maccabean Revolt just for a moment because I think it's fascinating, number one. But I also think the Maccabean Revolt kind of holds a little bit of significance to understanding what was under the surface. Okay. I want you to think about what was, what was boiling under the surface in the culture of Israel, immediately preceding Jesus' birth. Because as he comes, this is really effective. It really affected it. The Maccabean Revolt basically happened between 167 and 142 B.C., okay? It was led by this Jewish priest named Mattathias. Everybody say Mattathias. Okay, so it was Mattathias and his five sons. So these guys were the baddest dudes you'd ever meet. I'm going to put it that way, without going into a lot of detail. These guys... These are guys you take down dark alleys with you, for sure. Yes, they were priests, but these guys were armed to the teeth. This revolt that took place uh, with Mattathias and his five sons, the revolt that took place was basically a response to something. It was a response to an order from their Syrian ruler. So Syria was in charge. They were under Syria's thumb. And there was a Syrian ruler uh, named Antiochus IV, okay? And Antiochus basically ordered Mattathias and his sons to do this. 
He wanted them to sacrifice, offer up their sacrifices on one of the unlawful altars that Antiochus had erected in a small town northwest Judea called Modin. So you think of America, some northwestern city, and some presidential ruler goes, hey, from now on, you're going to start worshiping in this way and it's going to look like a huge pagan altar. You're going, to, you're going to worship Satan and all sorts of other things. That's where I want you to practice your religion. And we would do what? Cower down and do it or revolt and not. Well, these guys picked up arms. Okay, These guys, Mattathias and his five sons, man, like I said, they were some bad dudes. Uh, it was, it, this event, this whole event of this revolt was especially significant for the Jews. Why? It was significant because it happened right on the heels of Antiochus looting Jerusalem. So prior to saying, hey, you're going to offer, you're going to practice your religion this way now, prior to that, uh, Antiochus actually looted Jerusalem on a Sabbath day, on a Sunday, so to speak, it was Saturday probably then. And what he did was he, uh, he slaughtered a crap ton of Jews on that day. He then renamed the temple in Jerusalem after a Greek god. He erected pagan altars all throughout the country. He sacrificed swine on those altars. And he also prohibited Jewish religious practices, such as circumcision, Sabbath observance. And then he also banned and burned copies of the Torah. He did all that before he told Antiochus and his five sons, this is how you're now going to worship. Okay? Now, I want you to key in on something right here for just a moment. I want you to remember what he did. Not only did he slaughter all those Jews, but he started jacking around with Jewish religious practices, namely circumcision, Sabbath observance, and the Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Okay? These three things, I'm going to show you in a minute, were highly, highly, highly important to Israel's religion. Circumcision, Sabbath observance, the Torah. The Jews saw all of this that was taking place in that time. Mattathias, his five boys, they're like, no way, bro. What's happening here, they believed, is they believed this was the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation that had been predicted in Daniel chapter 11. And according to one author who did some work on this, he said that there was little further provocation necessary to start a Jewish revolt at this time. Uh, he said that this event, like many other events that led up to it, basically intensified... It basically boiled over the hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it was to a degree, he says, that was not typically even found in the Old Testament up until this point. This was like, it was like everything in Jewish history had come to this point and it was boiling over. There was an absolute disgust and hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles at that point. <coughs> so this, this episode is like within 150 years. So you think back through our history, right? What's happened in our history that for us in the West has been like points of conflict, right? You have the Revolutionary War. You have the Civil War. You have the writing of the Constitution. You have the Bill of Rights. All these things were like major points in our history. And, and then most recently, right, you have planes that fly into towers, all of that leads up for us. We know. We, we're living in this, right? We know. All those things lead up to, then you see what's happening in Israel lately, and you go, man, the world's coming unhinged, right? World War III, right around the corner, end of the world, Jesus coming back. Yeah, most of us have probably thought that, at least. 
So you can kind of you can kind of connect. You can kind of build a bridge from here to there and go, yeah, I think I can kind of feel the intensity of the situation when Jesus is being born into the world. Suffice it to say, each of the four historical periods that we briefly just worked through and honed in on the one, um, man, they're very significant to the formation of the culture of first century Judaism. There was a, what one author said, there was a, this created a cornucopia. Anybody know what that word means, cornucopia? Hey, learn a new word today. It means, no, Joe got it, because Joe did seminary. <laughs> cornucopia means an abundant supply. And you're like, why don't you just use the word abundant supply? Because I just used a whole bunch of words to describe cornucopia when you could just use the one word. It's an abundant supply of crazy things that were happening, right? Now, in the midst of this, think about this, in the midst of this, the actual Roman culture that, uh, that uh, Judaism was being, like, grown up in, right? It was starting to take shape. The culture they were living in, in terms of the Greek culture, the Roman culture, here's what they valued. They valued Greek mythology, Greek gods. They valued philosophy. They valued mysterious religions. They valued magic, Gnosticism, emperor worship. Like, that's the kind of culture that Judaism was trying to, like, grow up in and was being galvanized in by all these experiences and the culture surrounding them. It was a pluralistic society. Um, it was an emperor worship type of society. Now, all this to say, at the end of the day, you can kind of summarize some things. In the midst of all that, you can say, hey, there's some trends that were taking place in Judaism, amongst the Jews, you could say, you just say this is happening in the church, if they were the church, they're not, but similar, right? This is how it was being shaped. Here's some things that were characteristic of Israel. Number one, there was a high interest in angelology and demonology. So what's happening there? Spiritualism is taking place. Spiritualism is on the rise. They're, they really want to watch movies and read books about demons and angels. Okay, sound a little familiar for us. Uh, secondly, there was an emergence of a, of a very large quantity of poetry and wisdom literature. So what was taking place is people were becoming not only more and more educated, but they were becoming more poetic in the way that they were being educated. Third, uh, there was an increasingly positive view of human nature. What was taking place there is that the, the doctrine of sin was becoming more and more watered down. Humans aren't that bad. That's what was taking place. There was a more positive view of human nature. Four, uh, prayer and good works were being viewed as substitutes for animal sacrifices. What's taking place in that? What's taking place there is that the sacrificial system in and amongst the Jews that always was meant to point to Jesus was being laid down. It was being traded in for a more culturally acceptable form of practicing religion. You understand how we might be pressured in the same way to be more culturally acceptable and less biblically faithful? So there's, there's some connections there. Uh, th there was also a growing interest in apocalyptic themes and literature. What does that mean? That means that people were becoming more consumed with the end of the world. The end of the world is nigh. They were thinking this 2,000 years ago, just as much as we do now. Uh, there was also a centralization of synagogue worship and study. Okay? That this means that the synagogue was becoming the place where God's people worshipped. Uh, and so therefore their lifestyle of worship between Sundays or Saturdays or whatever was becoming more and more diminished. Because now there was a place where we worship rather than being a people of worship. Follow me? 
Uh, also, another thing that was taking place is the scribes within Israel. They had risen to a super high level of social prominence. Um, what this means is that people were beginning to not only look to their spiritual leaders to uh, lead them and feed them more, and they would rely on them only rather than their own spiritual disciplines, what was also taking place is they were beginning to change what their spiritual leaders were supposed to do. Instead of being spiritual leaders who would shepherd and lead and guide and direct and help us be accountable for our own spiritual growth, they were beginning to look to these leaders uh, so that they would then have a social impact. They wanted them to have a huge impact on the social structures they lived in. Basically, what I'm saying is they began to make their scribes more political than anything else. They began to trade in their jobs as spiritual leaders to become political transformers. That's what's taking place then. Now, this all leads later on down the road into the emergence of Catholicism, where Catholicism began to really control what was taking place in the political atmosphere. Okay? Um, so that's just a little bit of history. Uh, Sanhedrin was becoming very authoritative in Jewish life. Uh, the Sanhedrin is a council of religious leaders put together. And the personal aspect of relating to God was getting trampled under the feet of what I would call authoritarian leaders. Lastly, um, evangelization of the Gentiles had become very prominent. That sounds good, right? We should give them a star on their chart for that. They're trying to evangelize Gentiles. But the reality is that under the surface, the reason they were trying to evangelize the Gentiles was not so much because they had the gospel, not so much because they had the good news of the cross or the good news that God is our redeemer. They were evangelizing Gentiles more because of the need for numbers, they needed to leverage political power and social reform, so they needed more people. This is more so why they're evangelizing the Gentiles. So I'm sure as you look at this, you might be able to see some of the similarities, right, between the two groups. Now I want to hone in on a couple more things before we dive into Matthew. We're going to get there. Um, in Israel, if you could take all of this and synthesize it down or up or whatever and try to hang it on a coat hook... We would talk about something called badges and symbols of national identity, okay? Badges and symbols of national identity. Much like us in the West, we have our American flag. I have two of them, one on the front of my house, one in my garage. I am as American as they come. I don't have a tattoo of an American flag yet, but I will one day. Okay, just want you to know that. We have our badges and symbols. No, I probably will. Yeah, I know, you're looking at me like, I don't know where. I don't have any room, do I? Anyways... American flags. We have badges and symbols, right? No, I'll put it on a hat. On the forehead? Right there in the, the viewfinder of your hat. Right in the viewfinder. There, right there. That'd be perfect. I mean, you should probably fire me if I do that, okay? I'm just saying. My wife is like, please, please do not encourage this guy, because, yeah. So, we have our American flags. What else do we have? We have our Constitution, got our Bill of Rights. These are like badges and symbols of our national identity. We are American. The Jews also had their badges and symbols, and here they are. They had three badges, um, and these badges basically helped these Jews understand that they were a member of a community in good standing. And those three badges were, listen close, strict observance of dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, and circumcision. Do you remember some of those from the things that Antiochus was attacking? So you get how, if, if somebody comes on our shores and goes, no more flag, no more constitution, no more bill of rights. What happens? We arm up and we go to town, don't we? Right? That's what happens. This is historically in our country, that's what's going to go. That's going to happen. 
On top of those three badges, they also had three symbols. And those three symbols would be summed up this way. Pay attention. You got the temple, you got the land, and you got the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? And remember what Antiochus was attacking just roughly 150 years ago? He took and he burned the Torah. So imagine if our presidential leaders or something came in and grabbed all of our Bibles and burned them and told us we could not read them. What would happen? We would revolt. And that's what took place. It's into this kind of atmosphere that Jesus is coming in. It's into that that Matthew speaks. It's into this kind of culture that Matthew steps in and says, I want to introduce you to a man who's not just a man, but he's a God. He is the God. He is the Savior. He's not just the God, but he's the God who came to be with you. He's the God who came to rule you not only as a savior and rescue you, but rule you as a king whom you are to kneel your body to. Not only that, but he's also teacher, he's instructor, he's a prophet, he's, he's your healer. And not only that, but he's also the one upon whom the entire church is to be founded. That's the description that Matthew gives us. It's the first thing we see. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, right? That's the first part of the description as you work your way through the book of Matthew. Earliest portion of the text of Matthew's gospel is the text that we read at the beginning of this message. Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? Now, at the beginning of his genealogy, that's the way he begins. And at the end of that genealogy, verse 17, who does he refer to Jesus as? He refers to him as the Christ. And what this shows us is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior that Israel and the entire world have been looking forward to for many generations. Generation upon generation upon generation. Matthew moves forward. He builds on that theme of Jesus being our Messiah and our Christ when he relays the words of the angel to Joseph regarding Mary's pregnancy. He says in verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? What's the picture you get? Messiah, Savior, saving us from our sins. Jesus was literally born to die, to pay the price for our sins, so that by faith in his finished work at the cross, we could be saved. And in being saved, we could then be set free to live in obedient worship to God the Father Almighty. Listen, there is no national identity that will save you. An American flag in the middle of my forehead will not save me in eternity. It will not matter. When the end of time comes, that American flag, that constitution, that bill of rights is going to get burned up. The only thing that will save us is the broken body. And the shed blood of Jesus. There's no moral code that will save you. There's not multiple gods to run to for salvation. And salvation is not meant for one select group of people over the other. All people everywhere are called to run to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. Jesus, think about this, Jesus is literally the most iconic figure in all of history. Not just because he's the Messiah, but also because he's the Emmanuel. That's the second description Matthew gives us. He is Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 
22-23, Matthew says that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think about this. God in the person of Christ Jesus, he came down from his perfect place in heaven. Okay, I have a basement in my house. Um, and my wife can attest to this. We raised like seven kids down there, okay? And it, it was lovingly called the dungeon. This is my one bunny trail, y'all, okay? <clears throat> I'm going to keep it short. It was, uh, we lovingly called the dungeon. Uh, we had a laundry room down there and everything. Uh, for years, I did not condescend from the upstairs clean part of the house to the filthy seven children lived in basement. Because why? Because it was gross. Gross. Can I say it any more emphatically? It was gross. I did not go down there. If I did go down there, I had to have my head on straight. I would like open the windows and air it out and then take trash out to the, no, I'm kidding. It just, I didn't go down. I didn't condescend. Jesus though, God, God condescended from that beautiful, perfect place called heaven down to this filthy, sin-soaked place. And listen, he didn't just come down here so he could scold us for how filthy we made the place. He didn't come down to us to be like, yo, you need to put this place back together. You jacked it up. He didn't do that. He didn't make us come to him. He came here to be with us in the middle of our mess. How about that? He came to sit with you in the middle of your mess and say, look, let me clean this up for you. All the other so-called gods of that period and ours, if you think about it, require us to do something to attract their attention, to get them to draw near, right? How do they do that? Here's how they do that. Fix your philosophy. Your philosophy is jacked up. Get it straight. Pay your dues. Pursue more pleasure. Go to church more. Get your theology straight. Get a better social standing. Cut your hair just right, Michael. <laughs> I actually called the brother uh, respectable here, and he's like, I ain't respectable. I did cut my hair. Cut your hair just right. Wear a certain kind of clothing. Be a better person. Get a better job. Better yet, we've heard this one. Just be who you want to be, man. Jesus don't care. Just be who you want to be. Only God can judge you. you know, the funny thing is there's some pieces about that that are true. There's some pieces about that that will take you straight to the pit of hell. I don't ruin your life here on this earth in the process. Those are some of the ways that the culture in Jesus' day sought to draw close to God or a God. Similar to us here, right? We've got build bridges we can build all day from our culture to theirs. But Jesus steps on the scene, man, and he, he flips all of it upside down, flips it on his head, comes in the world in a fashion that is not consistent with our badges and our symbols of national identity. He doesn't give a rip whether we're American or not. Doesn't care. Speaking of national identity, Jesus doesn't just come to us as the Messiah to save us, doesn't just come to us as the God who wants to be with us. Matthew also says Jesus comes to this earth as the reigning king of kings and lord of lords, right? It's a third dynamic we see about him. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Beth Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now we're talking about kings. We're talking about presidential men. We're talking about national identity. 
came in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Wait a minute, I thought King Herod was the king of the Jews. Fair. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Imagine that. I'd be a little troubled too. Like, yo, I thought you were my king. This other guy's going to get born. He's going to be the king. How's that going to work? There's going to be a civil war. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now stop, press, pause. <clears throat> and foretold by the prophet, shouldn't the king of Jerusalem have paid attention to the words of the prophets? Yo. Like, yeah, you're a religious leader. You know what the problem is here? He should have been the one interpreting it and going, yo, hey, this is what's happening. Let's all go see King Jesus. He didn't do that. Bethlehem and Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Of course, if you know the rest of the story, immediately following this instance, the wise men do locate baby Jesus. They worship him as the king of kings and the lord of lords, right? In verses 7 through 12 of chapter 2. And one of the hardest parts, I think, of actually following God is this. And I want you to think about this with me. One of the hardest parts of following God is this. Removing myself from my own self-made throne. Don't you think? Following Jesus requires that we continuously remove ourselves from our own self-made thrones, and that's hard to do. That was the problem for King Herod. He should have been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Emmanuel, the king in the birth of Jesus. But instead, the text tells us he was troubled. And what did he try to do? He tried to murder Jesus. How did he try to do that? He literally killed at least hundreds, if not thousands, of babies. Babies murdered them. His hatred, his hatred of anyone who would attempt to dethrone him motivated him to murder the most helpless among our society. Sound familiar? Sound familiar, right? Think with me for a moment about all the instances throughout the book of Matthew. Not all of them, but many of them where he proved that he is the king. His authority was unmatched. It's going to be on the screen for him. I'm going to move fast. His authority was unmatched over people, unmatched over paralysis and suffering. He had more power than anybody else over illness and disease, over blindness and leprosy, over the wind and the water, over the temple, over sin, over demons, nature, history, the individual destinies of all human beings, his own destiny as he raised himself up out of the grave. His mission on earth, his power unmatched by anybody who has ever lived and ever will live. Space, time, future. He is powerful over all of it because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Suffice it to say, Jesus' authority and power as the king over all the universe, totally unmatched. Yet... There is no telling what you and I will do to avoid bowing our knees in humble submission to this Jesus as our king. We love him as savior to save us and promise us heaven, but we absolutely detest and hate him as our king. 
We may not murder babies, as King Herod did, although our Western culture, just like the Roman culture, seems to love murdering babies in defiance of God's commands for sexual purity. Period. We live in that. We may not do that, but we might attempt to drag the king of kings off his throne as we pursue things like pleasure, comfort, security, acceptance, control, power, at all costs. There's no check that we're not willing to write to get those things. Our thrones that we sit on are set up for self-worship. To follow Jesus means to submit to him Not only as Savior, but as King of Kings. To follow Jesus means to ask Him to demolish our self-made thrones so that we can then live in freedom according to His instructions. Which leads me to the next description of Jesus in the text as you work your way through this entire book. Hey, can y'all say this with me? This is awesome. We are more than halfway through the book of Matthew already. And we got two points left. It has been 37 minutes since I started. Praise Jesus. Miracles do happen. Amen? Amen. Very good. Why do I sound so southern when I say those things? I've never, I've been to the south like three times in my life. I don't know what's up with that. I'm Italian, yo. Really. The next description that we get from Matthew about Jesus is that, uh, yeah, he's our Messiah. He's our Emmanuel. He's our King, but he's also our teacher, preacher, and healer. You look at chapter uh, 4, you look at verses 17 and then 23 through 25, Matthew says, From that time, Jesus began to preach. Actually, I'm in chapter 4. We're not even halfway through the book. Everybody go, oh, man, you had my hope up. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Saying, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, it's not very culturally acceptable to preach repentance. It's not, but it's biblically faithful. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptic and paralytics, and he healed them. At the end of the day, Jesus never shrank back from preaching repentance. He never shrunk back from teaching the gospel. He never shrunk back from miraculously healing all who came to him with their sickness and their brokenness. Furthermore, Matthew tells us, now we're getting into chapter 7, tells us in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, that when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Remember the scribes? They were the fake spiritual leaders who were actually being raised up and propped up to be political leaders. They had no power in their message because all they would preach is social reform. That's it. No power. Yet Jesus steps on the scene and he preaches not as their scribes. He preaches as one with authority. How often do you think that you and I need to be reminded that we need Jesus to speak to us personally? How often do you think? Daily maybe, moment by moment. How often do you think you and I should be maybe drawn back? Like somebody needs to grab us by the shoulder and go, yo, hey, quit living on the coattails of somebody else's faith. Get your own. Spend time with Jesus. Walk with him. He came to be with you. How often do you think that your heart needs to be rekindled with the teaching of Jesus and the the preaching of Jesus throughout the Gospels? 
and the miraculous works of God in Jesus Christ, I would submit this. I think that God's plan for all of that, to lean more into that teaching, to lean more into that preaching from Jesus, to walk more and more with Him and see Him do miraculous things, I think all of that is actually wound up and bound up in our personal study of His Word, not alone like a stinking hermit, because we were never called to be hermits, but in the community of the body of Christ, otherwise known as the church of which Christ is the founder and the foundation. Which leads us to our fifth and final point. Jesus is the founder of the church. Multiple passages help to underline this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. You go to chapter 4, you look at verse 19, Jesus does what? Gathers disciples. Why does he gather them? So that he has a great following? No, because they're not really cool dudes anyways. They're scruffy, they smell like fish, and they're unlearned men. And they continuously fight with each other like little children. Right? Gathers these disciples. Why does he gather them? He says, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's a whole lot different than the mission statements of churches today. There's one in our town that I think on the side of their van or their building says something along the lines of, come here and you'll find purpose for your life. Okay. Have fun with that. Yeah, am I ripping on like some of the, the cool ways that we try to attract people? Yes, I am. Jesus chose to say, hey, I'll make you fishers of men. That's why you come follow me. This is why I think it's important for people to hear from Jesus for themselves, number one, and then make him known to the entire world. This is not about you coming and getting what you think you need to stroke your identity and become a better person. Chapter 16, jump all the way to there, 13 through 19. Jesus questions his disciples about who people say he is. Peter makes a confession of faith in that space. And upon Peter's confession of faith in verse 16, that Jesus simply is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does Jesus do? He commends Peter. He says, man, good job, Peter. Now, the funny thing is, shortly after this, he's like, yo, Peter, you are a hindrance to me. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, you ever want to call your kid Satan or your spouse? Kids regularly, you would never call your spouse Satan. She could call you Satan. Yes. yes. Got the answer right. No marital counseling this week. But we've never had to do that, so I'm just clearing that up to make sure. We're not going to have to, based upon your confession. He commends Peter for his confession of faith. And in verse 18, he says, On this rock, play on words, Peter's name is Rock, Cephas, Play on words. Peter becomes one of the major founders of the church. But upon this rock, Jesus standing there like this, pointing to himself. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That one is tattooed on my arm right there. Just so you know. I love that passage. The church that Jesus plants, meant to be a wartime machine that rescues people from, the, from within the, the very gates of hell. That's where we're supposed to be spending our time on. Knocking down the gates of hell and dragging lost people back. Jesus' disciples, um, also he says uh, in the rest of this text in chapter 16, um, Jesus' disciples are going to receive the power to bind people into the church, bind them into the kingdom of heaven based upon their confession of faith, or expel them from the church, expel them from the kingdom of heaven based upon their inability to confess Jesus crucified, risen, and returning. I don't think we can fail to mention Jesus' teaching on what it means to be a disciple, Right? Matthew 16, 24, 27 says, Anybody wants to be a disciple, they're going to deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
And the reality here is that you are not a disciple if you forfeit your soul by chasing worldly pleasures. Why? Because at the end of the day, Jesus himself is going to repay you. He's going to reward you if you're faithful and reward you or repay you if you are rebellious. He's going to do that when he returns. Final piece before we wrap it up. After his death and resurrection, very end of Matthew, right? Last chapter, chapter 28. Some of you know where I'm at. He approaches his disciples. He gives them the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that crazy? That's the way Gospel of Matthew ends. Jesus is the one who is the founder. Not only the founder, but he's the foundation of his church. <clears throat> he's the one who calls his disciples, transforms his disciples, models for his disciples what it means to carry a cross as you die to your selfish and simple desires. He, he develops his church into a battering ram that knocks down the gates of hell. He authorizes, deputizes his church to seek and to save the lost through the preaching of the gospel. Well, we must never forget that in all of this, at the very end there, Jesus promises to be with us and in us by the power of his indwelling spirit. Isn't that crazy? In conclusion, as we enter into this Christmas season with uh, all the beauty of the lights and the music and the food and the gift giving, the joy of friends, family, I don't want us to forget what we see in Matthew's gospel. And by way of application, I want to give you five Go do's. Number one, trust in Jesus as your Savior. Right. Though we live in a culture that actually values self-expression, live in a culture that values self-promotion, we live in a, a culture that values self-gratification, just do whatever makes you feel good. My prayer is that though we live in that kind of culture that you would be increasingly challenged and increasingly drawn to our Savior who came to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. Two, believe that Jesus is with you always. That's one really hard one, especially when you walk through difficult times, loss of loved ones and rebellion of friends and family, betrayal, whatever it may be. Believe that Jesus is with you always. Though we live in a culture that actually values something different, the culture around us values immediate gratification of every kind. Just go and do your own thing. My prayer is in the midst of that, we would be drawn to Jesus who was with us through thick and through thin and is actually continuing to call us to surrender to him in repentance. Three, surrender to Jesus as your king. To me, this is one of the biggest ones of the text. Surrender to Jesus as your king. You don't get him as savior if you don't get him as king. That's all I'm going to say. Right? We live in a culture that actually values rebellion against authority. We're supposedly the masters of our own destinies. In the midst of that kind of value and culture, please, guys, think about this and ask God, help us draw near to a king who quiets the wind and the waves quiets the demons that are inside our heads, our hearts. Destroys those demonic and sinful realms that seek to destroy us. Submit to that king. Fourth, listen to and obey Jesus as your teacher, 
your preacher and healer. Though we live in a culture that loves to plug its ears to the truth, loves to mock everything that is holy, let us, please, let us draw near to Jesus who desires to teach us the truth, who wants to preach the gospel of repentance to our hearts, and who loves to heal us of all that ails us. Fifth, final. Become part of the church that is planted upon the rock of ages. There are a lot of church buildings today that are full of dead, idolatrous worship. I pray that we never become that. Though we live in a culture that does value rugged individualism, let us draw near to the rock of ages. The rock of ages upon whom we can stand firm no matter what comes against us. The rock of ages upon whom the church has been founded. The rock of ages that I know I've leaned on for 11 plus years in the midst of planting a church that started with four and went to this room. The one who shed his blood, the one who allowed his body to be torn to pieces at the cross of Calvary so that we could be united to him in our confession of faith. The one who left the grave empty, something none of us have ever done yet. We have the hope of doing in the future as we trust in him. As he signified his victory over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is the one who promised to return to take us to heaven to be with him forever. Let us draw near not to the Jesus of our surrounding culture. Let us draw near to the Jesus of the Bible. The one who alone is powerful to save. The one who alone is with us until the very end. The one who alone demands our submission to him as our king. The one who alone is available to constantly and consistently instruct and provoke and heal us from our sicknesses and our sins. The one who alone is the solid foundation under our feet when the sands of our culture are slipping away. Let us draw near to Jesus. The Jesus of Matthew's gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for our time together. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us as we close to find our place at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb as we hold on to the hope of heaven. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.